Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that we have new 3D electronic tattoos. There's a new kind of 3D printer that draws precise patterns of electrically conductive material on your skin, which creates a temporary tattoo-like electronic device. And other 3D printers print stiff, motionless object type of things. And the new system uses computer vision to compensate for a moving printing service, like say the back of your hand as it's moving. And this research came out of the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, and they're making wearable LEDs. And they first struck a pre-made LED light onto the wearer's skin and drew a circuit around the bulb using a polymer ink laced with silver flakes, which allowed the ink to conduct electric current. And after about 15 minutes of letting the ink dry, the person with a new tattoo could keep the LED lit by holding a wireless power transmitter over the printed circuit. And maybe they could even have a 3D printed battery on there. They printed moisture sensors, which could be used to monitor sweat accumulation to gauge your stress levels. And they stay on for at least two hours, but you can peel them off when you're done. Now, at first blush, this sounds really cool. And would I wear something like this for two hours to gauge my stress levels during an event or something? I probably would. But what is missing from research like this is the fact that your skin, your mitochondria are light sensitive and having LED right there might be a problem. And having a wireless power transmitter over your cells is absolutely going to induce currents and probably activate the voltage-gated calcium channels inside your cells that cause cell swelling, inflammation, and mitochondrial dysfunction, as you've heard on other things. So we're dealing with all these amazing new technologies that can change the world around us, but we always have to take into account what happens to our biology when we use new technologies like this. Now, would the knowledge that you gain or the pleasure that you gain from maybe having a tattoo for two hours during a concert be higher than the biological wrath you might incur? Probably, which is why this is cool. But I love the idea of being able to pay attention to both. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. 
If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Before we get into today's show, did you know that Bulletproof.com, of course, has the Bulletproof products, but Amazon has many of them now too? And if you like to buy on Amazon, I'd be grateful if you would take a second to leave a review for a Bulletproof product. If Brain Octane Oil or one of the other things like our collagen has changed the way you think or changed how you feel, letting another person know, including me, that it's working for you uh, makes a really big difference. It's one of the, the simplest ways you can just tell people, hey, I like this stuff and I'd sure appreciate it if you did that. Today's guest is Dr. Robert Cialdini. This guy spent his entire career researching the science of influence, which earned him an international reputation as an expert in the field of persuasion, compliance, and negotiation. And he's written several books based on decades of peer-reviewed research on why you comply with requests in everyday settings. And he's known as the godfather of influence. And Dr. Cialdini says, the best persuaders become the best through persuasion, the process of arranging for recipients to be receptive to a message before they encounter it. And today we're going to talk about how that process works and also how Dr. Cialdini became known as the, the father of his field or the godfather anyway, and became one of the top experts and just known for it. When I say known for it, his book, Influence, Science and Practice, sold 3 million copies in 32 languages. And his new book, Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade, hit the Wall Street Journal and just came out in paperback. He's also, aside from being a professor at Arizona State University, um, he's CEO and president of Influence at Work, a company that focuses on ethical influence training for large companies like Google, Microsoft, Cisco, Coca-Cola, Ericsson, and a whole long list of other names that you've heard. So what he's doing is he's teaching companies how to be ethically persuasive, and he's teaching you and me how to know if we're being played. And we're going to talk about that in today's interview. Let's get right into it. How did you decide to become into or to become an expert in this field that is really wasn't a part of academic research? Like, like what drove you to to do this? Well, you know, it was partly out of self defense. Uh, all my life, I had been an easy mark for the pitches of salespeople or fundraisers who would come to my door, offer me uh, uh, opportunities that I didn't really want, but I would find myself saying yes to them. And it occurred to me that there must be something besides the merits of what was being offered that got me to say yes. It must have been the way the merits were presented to me. The psychology of the delivery of the merits somehow got me into assent when I didn't want the thing. So I thought to myself, well, I should – I should study this because not only will uh, I be better off uh, financially if I understand it, it's a fascinating set of issues unto themselves. And in academia, it's pretty hard to create a, a new field. When, when I was going to Wharton, I needed a bunch of data so we could do some statistical analysis for one of my classes. And I said, hey, guys, I have an EEG machine. So why don't we look at what's now called neuromarketing? I said, let's look yeah. at people's brainwaves and let's see what they're doing 
uh, and, and see if we can get a signal out of the noise. And my teammates looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about, Dave? Like, no, we're, we're going to look at some boring data. So we did. Um, but um, I've seen a, an increase in the speed of things like this reaching academic things. But you were one of the earliest guys in the field. So did you have to, like, fight with Arizona State University to make this a discipline in academia? Or were you already tenured and you just said, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to do it. Yeah. So what happened was it started out as a relatively academic investigation. I realized that the people who really knew about the influence process were people whose business it was to get others to say yes to them. Salespeople, marketers, advertisers, recruiters, fundraisers. And I thought, well, if I go and investigate what they say in their training programs, right, that they know works, then I will have identified some powerful influences on the influence process that I could take to my scientific investigations to figure out why these things worked. So I started in enrolling in the sales training programs incognito. They didn't know that I was a university professor. Just I was there and I was taking notes. And at about a month into that process, I thought, oh, no, there's a book here. This isn't just about ideas to take to my laboratory. There's a, there's a story to be told about which psychological triggers work across the widest range of influence professions that have been – that have learned over the years what works for them. So beginning with an academic uh, orientation kept the wolves away from my door. This was all part of something I was doing for academic investigations. And then when I turned it into a popular press book, uh, then I worried that people would call me a popularizer. <laughs> And Dave, you've never heard condescension until you've heard an academic pronounce the word popularizer. That's what worried me. But it turned out it didn't happen because of something I didn't even realize I was doing at the time. And that is, I wasn't just promoting my own research. I was promoting all of the research of my colleagues and their boats were rising uh-huh. on the tide. So they were happy to have my work out there to audiences that they hadn't con- connected with in the past. Is there a difference between being an influencer and being a popularizer? Well, a popularizer, I think, in the old sense of the term, the one that my colleagues shivered when they said, uh, when they pronounced it, was someone who sensationalized the science, who didn't really provide an, uh, an accurate presentation or representation of it. Now, I'm going to say that provided the researcher does a good job of presenting the integrity of the work, that is something I give a thumbs up to. And to be an influencer, then, is to have reach with that information. You get it around to as many followers as you have. (laughs) You get people who want that information 
and then you become the source of change in their lives. That's, I, I don't know a better circumstance than that. Something used to make me really mad in Silicon Valley. I was a, a senior technologist uh, where I, I would see the, the most amazing new technologies and then I would see subpar technologies just kick their ass in the market. And it happened over and over. And I just realized, look, if you have the best thing in the world and no one hears about it, you utterly failed. And it seems like sometimes in academia, like why well, I, I have this amazing research that could change the world, but I didn't do the painful, scary work of telling the world about it and, and taking the hits along the way that naturally come from bringing a new idea out. And, and so you're only doing half the job if you make the discovery. If no one hears about your discovery, like if a discovery happens in the wood and no one's there to hear it, did it really happen? Right. Do you share that perspective? I do, especially because of a belief I have in the contract that academic researchers have, have forged with the non-academic community, which is you pay for this research. And that's what they do with their tax dollars. They pay for the research, right? They're entitled to know what we have found about them with their money. Right. right? They're entitled to it by the virtue of that contract, right? So it seems very important to me that we do more than just develop an understanding that we trade among ourselves as academics. No, the people who provided the resources to do the work are entitled. They deserve to know what we have found that will improve their lives by improving their understanding of how we work as a species. I fundamentally believe our top academics uh, have a moral obligation to be rock stars if they're that good at their field uh, because they're pushing the bounds of human knowledge. And if they shy away from that because they're worried about being popularizers, they're kind of failing in their discipline. And the way you just put it where you know someone paid you to do that is is a beautiful thing. And I want to dig deep because what we're talking about here is influence. If, you, if you're an academic, one measure of influence is how many people uh, cite your research. So there's like all these competitions to see who's the most cited researcher. Um, and that's in a small fishbowl. But the other measure of an academic success is, you know, did somebody read 3 million copies of your book explaining your work to people who aren't experts in the field? And if so, your work had a bigger impact. But that's a measure of influence. But you also talk about in your work, you talk as much about influence as you do about persuasion. What's the difference between persuasion and influence? Like, how do you academically define them? And how can our listeners learn to think about them? In academic circles, persuasion usually refers to attitude change, changing somebody's attitudes, someone's beliefs, someone's perceptions, right? That's not the same as behavior change, which is normally what we talk about when we say social influence. We have influenced a person's behavior, that person's conduct, right? So for me, I'm much more in that second domain because it seems to me the reason we want to change someone's attitudes or beliefs or perceptions is in order to change their behavior. That change occurs in the service of behavior change. So I'm going to cut to the chase and go right to the thing that I think is, is where the rubber meets the road. That's actually getting people to do something differently than before. 
where's the ethics part of this? You, you teach about this, you write about this. If you are a master of NLP or you, know, you have the ability to persuade someone, you can persuade someone to you know, give you all their money so you can buy you know, a gold Rolls Royce kind of thing. And this has happened throughout history. How do you know that the, the dark arts that you're studying won't be misused? I don't know that, it, that they won't be misused and it bothers me. So what I have done is to take steps to present this material only in narratives that involve ethical uses of the principles of influence and also to advise anyone who has received an unethical treatment, undue influence, to report that on review websites so other people know about it. I'll give you an example that uh, applies to me, which is uh, the last time I bought a television set, I was in an electronics store. I wasn't really looking for a new TV, but I saw a model on the shelf that had been very highly evaluated on the Consumer Reports. You know, I get that magazine. Right. And it was on sale. It was a good sale besides a, a deep discount. And I was standing in front of the screen uh, looking at it and sort of pondering, what should I do about this? And the salesman came up to me and he said, I see you're interested in this set at this price. I can see why. That's a great deal. But I have to tell you, it's our last one. Creating scarcity. <laughs> Creating scarcity. And immediately I started to feel a, t- a-, a tension, right? Because it was the last one. And then he said to me, you know, I live in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and Scottsdale, Arizona is a, is a suburb. And he said, and I just got a call from a woman in Scottsdale who says that she might come down this afternoon to get that last set. Wow. High-pressure sales tactics. The double whammy. 20 minutes later, I'm wheeling out of the store <laughs> with, with this television set because of the principle of scarcity. I write books about the principle of scarcity. <laughs> it still swept me away. Now, let's, let's go back to your question about the ethics of this. Here's what I'll claim. If that salesman was telling me the truth, and this really was the last model, he's my ally. I want to know that. It, that figures into my decision of whether to buy it. If, if he didn't tell me it was the last one and there was somebody who might come and get it that afternoon, and I went home to think about it, and then the next day came back and it was gone, I would say to this guy, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you inform me about the legitimate scarcity of this thing? So I would have been angry at him if he didn't use scarcity on me, provided that it was inherent scarcity. It was true scarcity in that situation. If, on the other hand, that was just a tactic that he used. There were 10 more of those models in the storeroom after I got mine, he'd go and replace it with the next one and use the scarcity tactic on the next prospect. So here's what I did. I did go back the next day to see if there was an empty space on that shelf. And there was. There was. He was my ally. He was my partner in this process of choosing well. So 
Then I went to my office and I wrote a glowing review of that shop and this particular person, right? If it had been a trick, I would have gone to my office and written a devastating review of that place and this profiteer, right? Right. So that's the difference. Is the principle naturally a part of the situation? You are entitled to use it ethically. If you have to fabricate it or, man, or counterfeit it, then it's not acceptable to use that principle ethically. It's not ethically acceptable. One of the things I learned as a, as a computer hacker in Silicon Valley is that we need hackers out there to figure out the rules and to publish tools so that all of us have access to the tools that will be used by big companies against us. So if, if only a few people know about uh, persuasion and influence, uh, they could use it to have undue influence. And I, I believe that for all of the technologies for controlling our, our biology, that, that we have a fundamental human right to understand them and have access to them. But I'm a little concerned here because you, as one of the humans who should be most resistant uh, to the types of persuasion that you've studied for your career, you're still uh, you're still subject to them. I, I, yeah. So it, now the cat's out of the bag. I'd rather know that these exist and have a compendium of them, which is what's in Persuasion and in your more academic book before that, in order to to just at least now we know it's happening to us versus before we just walk around bewildered. Why do I keep spending money on stuff I didn't want? But it, is there actually like a defense system that our listeners can can develop to know when they're being played? Here's the best one that I know, because very frequently, we can't know that we're being played until after the fact, and what we have doesn't live up to the claims of the presenter of, of that offer. That's why I go to review sites before I purchase or decide about anything. That's what the internet has given us as consumers that we didn't have before. This set of options has been beta tested for us by all kinds of individuals from around the world who can re report on their experiences with it. I think that is our best strategy. The other one is unfortunately after the fact, where we say yes to something, we purchase it, uh, we vote for somebody, whatever the, the, the request is, we we comply, and then we're dissatisfied. At that point, we have to voice our dissatisfaction. We have to raise our complaint about the veracity, uh, about the validity of those claims. And we do that on the internet. It's why there are so many fake reviews on Amazon and other places where companies have figured this out. And most of us can spot fake reviews because they just don't sound real. But it, it's because companies have figured out that reviews are such a powerful way for people to make a purchasing decision. Yeah. And, and what I've seen is that there's now a constant battle between those uh, falsifiers on the one hand and the sites, the review sites that are developing algorithms to – to locate those those fake uh, commentaries, yeah. yeah I, I fell victim to one of those algorithms on Amazon. Uh, somebody wrote a book called The Bulletproof Diet. Uh, that was me. Uh, 650,000 copies sold, and someone else wrote one that had non-information and basically tried to steal the trademark. And I left them a review that said, hey, I'm the author of the real book. Like, this thing is fake. And then the algorithm was like, oh, uh, sorry, Dave, your reviews aren't any good. I'm like, how is this possible? Right. Uh, 
uh, who knows? Yeah. It's, it's all it's all driven by computer uh, decision That's support right. systems. You hope that they're honing that to get better. Yeah, Amazon, if you're listening. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people trying to hone it, yeah. There are, and, and I hope that's getting better. So the number one way that people can know if they're, they're being played is, is look at reputation in the form of online reviews and, and other, other sources online to just figure out, am I dealing with a, a con artist or am I dealing with someone you know, who is using, ethically using the art of persuasion to share something that's meaningful? Now, because this is a, a, short, a shorter interview than normal, uh, there's one question I want to ask you as someone who's you know, at the you created a field basically you're one of the creators of the field anyway and you're certainly at or near the top of the the field of persuasion. So I'll, I'll say you know something about performing well in in your discipline. And if someone came to you tomorrow, someone you didn't know, and said, Dr. Cialdini, I want to perform better at everything I do as, as a human being, uh, my my field, my discipline, just to be a good a good human. What are the three most important pieces of advice you'd offer me? What would you offer them? So, one would be to put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're dealing with and try to reflect on their experiences with you. So, what if you were in a position of hearing yourself say this to one of your subordinates? How would you feel about that? So, you self-correct. That's one thing to do, essentially that. The other and I'm just going to leave it at two because I, those, these are the two that I would employ. I would set about writing a book on what I do. That forces you to think deeply thoughts that you never had while you were just experiencing what you do. right? But when you have to think through the causes of it, the consequences of what you do and so on, you get insights that you never had before that allows you to be much better at what you do for those insights. Uh, that was two. And what's your third one? Well, um, I guess the third one would be to give the people around you an anonymous way to give you feedback about what you do. A suggestion box of some sort or another, probably online, but but something that was that was uh, anonymous so that they would not feel that you would be able to uh, retaliate if they said something negative. And then you get these correctives then that, that allow you to do your job better based on how other people have experienced you doing your job. I think you just set a record because I've asked that question of more than 500 people over the past few years, and, and I'm using those questions uh, to form some of the hypothesis, if that's a word, in my next book. Uh, you just had two new answers that I haven't heard. One was you know get get anonymous feedback, and, but the one that that just really stood out when you advise everyone listening, you know, a few hundred thousand people, hey, write a book. Uh, there's a reason I write a book uh, every year, maybe every 18 months, it's because it's the only way I know besides actually teaching a class on something in order to really get it into my head so I understand it viscerally. Like, like the act of doing that is so yeah. powerful, but no one's ever said, hey, you should do that too. Like, thank you for that advice because that is, that is profound. Even if you never published the book, the discipline to think about what goes in a book is, is a huge gift and I never thought of it that way. I never have as deep a thought about a topic as when I'm writing it, writing about it, that it it kicks off a particular set of 
uh, strategies and approaches to information that you don't just get to when you're skirting over the surface of it in an experiential kind of way. This has been a, a fascinating but short interview and one that I think will be valuable for all of our listeners. And thank you for being on the show. And, and for, for people listening, you've got to check out Persuasion. It just came out in paperback, so it's, it's very affordable for you to, to get it. It's on shelves everywhere right now. And uh, it is totally worth reading, not so you can learn the dark art of manipulating your friends. Um, if you want to do that, uh, just sign up for a multi-level marketing scheme. Um, what, <laughs> what you can do in, instead, though, is know how to ethically use these tools to, to make the important things you do more accessible and to know if you're being played, which is such a gift. And to find that in one book is rare and unusual. And that's why uh, I was lucky enough to get a, a half hour of Dr. Cialdini's time because you are a very sought after guy. And thank you for spending your time with us. I enjoyed it, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.